My name is Don Cusick. I was with you last Sunday. Some of you may not have been here, and it's good to be back. And uh, you've had a rough week, some of you. Uh, has anybody been without power all week? Several of you. And uh, some of you may be able to smell them, <laughs> the ones that have been without power all week. Boy, what an ordeal. Uh, we went through something like that 10 years ago, and, and we were out for over a week, and it was, it was an ordeal. We stayed with friends who had power on the south side of town. Some, some of you all may have done that, and uh, their lines ran underground. And we kept making forays back to our house to get into the freezer because, you know, it was defrosting. And the longer the power was off, the better we ate. <laughs> you know, those things we had saved in the freezer for so long. Well, let me ask you this. What is your idea of church? I just want you to think about that for a moment. What do you think of when you think of church? I believe that the average person, and you may be an above-average group, so I don't want to insult anyone, but I really think the average person thinks of church as a very pleasant place. Being a Christian should be a pleasant thing. And I would use the analogy of a picnic to describe how I think most people approach the Christian life and church. And, you know, at a picnic, you're supposed to have a nice time. And you sit in the lawn chair you bring with you, and, and uh, this one's had it. And uh, my wife hates it when I bring this one. But... Um, you sit in a lawn chair, you have Baptist beer, also known as tea, and, um, and whatever the case may be, and you, you enjoy friends and present, pleasant company. Occasionally there may be a spat between a couple family members, and we all kind of get uncomfortable and we look away. And, you know, that happens at church. Sometimes people misbehave, and they're just people. And, and we just enjoy ourselves. What I think that picture misses is the incredible reality described for us in the Bible of what life really is like and what reality really is like. Because right now, all around us, there is another reality that we cannot see that dramatically affects the world that we do see. The title of this morning's message, and I'm not going to preach from this chair the whole time, but uh, the title of this morning's message is Winning the War Within And if you got a handout when you came in, I, I encourage you to follow along and take notes. If this is not something immediately helpful to you, it may be helpful to someone uh, in your life this week. But I want to read a passage of Scripture beginning at the very end of Matthew chapter 3. And this won't be on the screen, so you'll need to probably follow along in, in your Bible or look on with somebody else. Uh, but it's the baptism of Jesus is where I'm starting, Matthew chapter 3. And... Um, and verse 16. And just listen to this for a moment. When he had been baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting upon him. And suddenly a voice came from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Now that's the baptism of Jesus. And we understand, those of us you know, who've kind of been at this for a while, we kind of we understand this was the starting point of Jesus' public ministry. That up to this point, there were what scholars call the silent years. We don't know a great deal about his childhood and young adulthood, but we do know that at this point, when the Holy Spirit came upon Jesus and took directional control of his life, that his ministry, his public ministry, began here. Now, 
filled with the Holy Spirit, anointed with the Holy Spirit, guided by the Holy Spirit, what is the very next thing that takes place? Well, turn the page and look at chapter 4, verse 1, and let me keep reading. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Now, that ought to surprise you. Led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And when he had, been, had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, afterward he was hungry. Now, when the tempter came to him, he said, If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him up into the holy city, set him on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, He shall give his angels charge over you. That's from Psalm 91. And in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, It is written again, You shall not tempt the Lord your God. Again, the devil took him up on an exceedingly high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in their glory. And he said to him, All these things I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Away with you, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only you shall serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, the angels came and ministered to him. Now, what I see in that, and if we look at the life of Christ as a whole, and we look at the New Testament, that this picture of the church is a gross misrepresentation of what the Bible says. Because from the very moment of Jesus' beginning of his ministry, he is engaged in a conflict, a spiritual conflict. And, and everywhere he goes, conflict erupts. In fact, John the Baptist, his cousin, had come preaching, the kingdom of God is at hand. And right after this temptation, if you keep reading, Jesus goes preaching and he's preaching, the kingdom of God is at hand. And, and the very proclamation of that message caused all kinds of controversy, not only in human terms, but I believe in a world that we cannot see in a spiritual realm, it caused controversy as well. You see, the Bible indicates, and I don't have time to delve into this, I wish we could, but the Bible indicates that the world as we know it today is not the world as God originally made it and intended it to be. We live in a fallen, corrupted creation. And if we forget that, it, it really hurts us when we're trying to talk to someone who doesn't know Christ, someone who's been steeped in uh, evolutionary thought that this all happened by some kind of mathematical chance or accident. Because they say, you say God is good. God is wonderful. There's an atheist named Richard Dawkins that says that. He's, you know, you say God is good. God is wonderful. That God has made this creation that we're in. Have you looked at this creation lately? Terrible diseases that eat people from the inside out. Horrendous crimes of humanity against humanity and serial killers and little children even being hurt. Atrocities, genocides. And in nature, you look at nature and you see one predator run another creature down and eats it alive and you can hear it on the Discovery Channel. That animal screams. As it's dying, it's in pain. And there are killer storms and there are tsunamis that take thousands of people out at once. 
And you look at this creation and you say, God is the one who made it. And then for the average person, that sort of stumps us. Because we, we don't understand that the Bible tells us that there was an incredible corruption of creation that happened when Adam and Eve sinned and gave the dominion of the earth over to someone else. The Bible identifies him later as Satan. Even in this temptation, the devil takes Jesus up, shows him all the kingdoms of the world, says, I can give you this if you'll worship me. Now that couldn't have tempted Jesus unless it was a legitimate offer. 1 John 5.19, he says, We know that we are of God, and the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. We are in a spiritual battle, a war. And so when John the Baptist and Jesus come preaching that the kingdom of God is at hand, they are preaching a message of rebellion inside someone else's kingdom. And all hell breaks loose. And everywhere Jesus goes, he's putting things back to God's original intent. He takes diseased people. He makes them well. People who have been corrupted and damaged by sin, he forgives them. People who need to be set free, eyes that need to be opened, deaf ears that need to be opened. At one point, he's accused later in Matthew 12 of casting out demons by the prince of demons. That somehow, as a demonized person himself, that he's able to cast out demons. Jesus said, that's stupid. I'm paraphrasing. (laughs) A house divided against itself can't stand. If Satan casts out himself, if Beelzebub casts out himself, how, how can his house stand? That's silly. He said, but, this is really significant, Matthew 12, he says, but, if I cast out demons by the instrumentality of the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. In other words, I'm not just announcing that God rules. I'm demonstrating that God rules. The kingdom has come. And it was an incredibly controversial announcement. And, And what you and I need to understand are some basic things because I want to talk to you today about winning the war within. The whole concept of dealing with temptation in your life because that really is the first battleground where you and I encounter this conflict. You and I. Everyone here. And so there's some basic concepts I want to put in place as we begin. First of all, spiritual warfare occurs in an unseen world, an unseen realm. There's a world that I cannot see that dramatically affects the world that I do see. And, and as Western Christians, we say we believe in angels and demons in the world that we can't see, but, but we really don't give much attention to it. And it's part of the the Western worldview that that we have been enculturated with in our education and even in church sometimes. Everything sort of depends on us, and God helps those who help themselves. And, yeah, He's there, and I believe in all that. When I die, I'll go to heaven and all that. But I really don't have a conception, the average Western Christian, that, that God is active here and now and that there's a spiritual conflict raging around me. Going back to this picture of church that many of us in the West have, it just sort of blocks us from seeing both realities. And we're sitting in a lawn chair in the middle of a battlefield. I mean, if I could send you on an all-expense-paid vacation to Baghdad, would you want to go? I mean, of course not. 
because it's a, it's a battlefield. And you, you, you don't drink tea and sit in lawn chairs in the middle of a battlefield because bullets are whizzing by and bombs are going by and people are dying and people are being taken out. The thing that you care about in a battlefield is the next direction of your commanding officer. And that's really how we're called to live. But we sit in church and we see somebody's marriage tank and we see somebody's kid rebel and run away from God and we see somebody fall into deep sin and we say, oh, isn't that terrible, so-and-so messed up. And we don't see them as a casualty of a spiritual war that's taking place around us. So this, this warfare occurs in an unseen realm. A second observation is, is that warfare, this spiritual warfare, is fueled by the advance of the kingdom of God. As people yield their life to the rule of God, as a church yields themselves to the direction of God, then you can expect warfare to erupt. How many times have you seen growing churches with great communicators as pastors where that pastor's gone down in moral flames because they blew it spiritually? You see? Wherever the kingdom of God begins to advance and you see people begin to be reached for Christ and lives change and marriages made whole and, and, and then the devil sees then that pastor is dangerous, that church is dangerous, I need to do something about this. And that's why it's so incredibly important in a growing church that you have a vital prayer ministry where you're praying for your pastors, you're praying for your staff, you're praying for your teachers, you're praying for your, your families. And so it's fueled by the advance of the kingdom of God. It's waged from a position of complete victory. Jesus said that, that I can't go in and cast out demons. You can't go into a strong man's house unless someone binds the strong man, he says in Matthew 12. He says, but when the strong man's bound, you can go in and plunder his house. He said, I want you guys to do that with me. Again, I'm paraphrasing. You have to go read it yourself. I want you to gather with me. And so we don't, we don't move towards victory. At the cross, Jesus won the victory in the sense of overcoming the enemy. But we're in this in-between state between the cross and when Jesus returns. And so the kingdom is pressing in to this other kingdom all the time. We're to pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven right now. Lord, we want you to rule in our circumstances. We want you to come in and rule. Doesn't mean everybody will be healed. Doesn't mean every marriage will be saved. Doesn't mean everything will go well with you and me. Doesn't mean everything's going to be okay. But sometimes God breaks in. And the kingdom of God becomes apparent to a watching world. And then spiritual warfare is a mark of authentic followers of Jesus. As we follow Him, increasingly, we recognize the spiritual conflicts that are taking place around us. Not just stuff with people. Not just relationship problems. Not just financial problems. Not just stuff that happens. We realize that there is often a conflict taking place. Now, the first battlefield you and I have to deal with, every person here is not exempt is the personal temptation that you and I encounter from time to time. And Jesus, right after the Holy Spirit fills his life, the very first thing he does is go into a situation of temptation. So here's the question of the hour. How do I war against the tempter and temptation? How do I do that? Have you given that much thought? I mean, a lot of times I think our approach to temptation is just a sort of gritted out. And there's an aspect of dealing with temptation that's kind of like that. We're going to talk about that. But sometimes our approach is just to sort of suck it up. 
Let me offer you some observations from the life of Jesus that I think are incredibly helpful. This is not everything there is to say about this passage. And this is not everything I could say to you about temptation. But these are some things that I think are helpful. Number one, cultivate sensitivity to the Holy Spirit. Cultivate sensitivity to the Holy Spirit. The Bible says that Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted. In verse 1, chapter 4. Who led him into this situation? The Holy Spirit did. And, and immediately the devil comes to confront Jesus or the tempt Jesus to sin. And in the same way, the devil wants to attack you as an individual. He can attack a church. He can attack a group of people. But we need to understand that temptation fundamentally happens to you as an individual. Now, it may appear to you to be odd that the Holy Spirit led him into a wilderness situation where temptation could occur. But often the devil's temptations can be turned to God's victory, as it happened here. Now, Jesus never sinned. We hold that as an article of faith. He did not have to overcome, as you and I do, an accumulated body of sin habits that we have formed over our life. He didn't have to do that. But he did have to demonstrate who was going to be in charge of his life. Who was going to have directional control in his life. Who was going to, he had to demonstrate inner control over his own passions and his own desires that he had on the inside. This is the first battlefield. If you and I don't win here, we won't win anywhere. And one of the reasons you see Christian leaders go down in flames is because they have not dealt with this battlefield. They've dealt with other things in their life. But they've acquired a professional level of purity. Just enough to get by. And they haven't dealt with the inner battlefield. That's where we need to start. We need the Holy Spirit. The Apostle Paul later would write these words in Galatians 5, verse 16. He says, I say then, walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. To walk in the Spirit is to let the Holy Spirit have directional control of my life, my decisions, my actions, even the words out of my mouth, helping me recognize thoughts that I shouldn't have that are inappropriate. Walking in the Spirit is walking in a cooperative way with a, another personality, an individual who is the Lord of my life. Walking in the Spirit. If I do that, he says, you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh, the desire that's inside me that wants to do something contrary to God. Doesn't mean I won't feel it. He didn't say, walk in the Spirit, you won't feel the lust of the flesh. He said you won't fulfill it. You'll feel it, but you won't let it culminate into an action that then is a sin. And so the Spirit is essential at that point. For the flesh, lust against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh, and these are contrary to one another so that you do not do the things that you wish. One of the evidences that you are in fact a Christian is that there's an inner struggle going on between desires that we call the flesh and the Holy Spirit on the inside. Cultivate sensitivity to the Holy Spirit. That's done over time. It's done as part of your time alone with God whenever you do that during the day. But then it's also carrying that relationship into every conversation, carrying that relationship into every interaction and learning to do that as we grow. Secondly, I war against the tempter and temptation when I endure the resonance within. Endure the resonance Within. What do I mean by that? I'll explain it in a moment. In verse 2 it says, When he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, afterward he was hungry. No, duh. I would be too. 
So where does the devil begin to tempt Jesus? At the very point of his felt need. He's feeling hunger. So the devil comes to him and says, turn these stones to bread. He starts with what he's feeling, what he's wanting, what he's needing, and that's how the devil approaches you and I. There's a principle in physics and in acoustics and music called resonance. Resonance, by definition, is the intensification and prolongation of a sound, especially of a musical tone, produced by sympathetic vibration. Well, this is significant. I brought today a couple of things to help us. I also brought my son, Sam. Sam, I need your help, buddy. Sam is a student at Williams Baptist College, and he leads worship there for them. And They got iced out. They're out of school till a week from Monday. Y'all, well, anyway, it was rough. So um, I got a couple tuning forks here with a little amplifier box, and Sam's going to have a mic on the one at the other end of the platform. When I ding this thing, it vibrates at 200 55 hertz a second. And, um, and so this one is also set to vibrate at 255 hertz a second. And what will happen when I ding this, I hope, is that that will sympathetically vibrate because they're on the same pitch. Okay? So let's see if it works. Sam, you got that mic on? Got it up there, buddy? Okay, it's on. Let's see if it's on. Is this on? Yes. Okay, so here we go. All right, y'all ready? Now listen. Hear the other one? You see, and I never touched that one. Okay? Now, I'm going to adjust this one a little bit. I'm going to run it up to 256 hertz. And um, it may echo a little bit, but it's going to be different. Listen. You hardly hear anything. In fact, it's just one beat per second off, and it doesn't resonate at all. You want to see that again? Let me go to 255 hertz. Some of you all are looking at me like, what was that? <laughs> okay, here we go. One more time. You hear that other one? Isn't that cool? All right, thanks, Sam. You can take your seat. You want to go put those back for me? Give him a big hand. Y'all give him a big hand. In James chapter 1, verse 14, the apostle writes, But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own sin, his own desires, and enticed. Each one's tempted when he's drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Then when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. You see, the devil can't tempt you unless there's something inside you that resonates with what he's tempting you with. In other words, you've got to want to do it. You can't be tempted unless there's something in you that would really like to do it. There's some things that don't tempt you, right? I mean, there's some things that just don't tempt you at all. You know, um, smoking does not tempt me. Now, I'm not going to tell you what does, but there are just certain things that don't tempt me. Gambling does not tempt me. I've worked with people who were addicted to gambling. They were tempted by gambling. It doesn't do anything for me. And so when Jesus was tempted, he felt a desire to do it. The Bible says he was hungry. Turn these stones to bread. You can eat. And, and so he felt it. Now, here's what you need to understand. There's a big difference between resonance and feeling that pull and the actual conception of what we call sin. 
feeling and desiring at the initial stage is not sin. Or else Jesus would have sinned. It is when you take that desire and you begin to think about it and formulate a plan of action and then you act on it. Now where's that line? I can't draw that for you and I'd rather not. I'm just saying that the moment you feel that pull, that's called resonance. You're being tempted. The enemy's coming in. And, and what do you do with resonance? How do you respond to that? There's a verse in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 13, a very familiar passage to some of us. It says, No temptation has taken you except such as is common to man. We all get tempted. But God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will also make the way of escape. Now, some of us have read that for years, and that's as far as we go. Oh, great, I can get away from the sin. There's a place I can go to where I won't feel tempted. Maybe, maybe not. Read the rest of it. That you may be able to bear it. God provides a way of escape that you may be able to bear it. It's a Greek word, hypopharo. It means to bear up under some press or stressure, uh, stress. And so... What does that mean? That means I have to endure resonance sometimes. I don't need to be silly. If something is tempting me and it's right there in front of me and I can walk away from it, I ought to walk away from it. But there are some things that go on in our hearts that I can't walk away from. It's a pull in my heart. And the Bible is saying at this point that there are some things like that that I have to endure. God provides a way of escape that you may be able to bear it or endure it. So I have to endure that resonance. There's always going to be something that pulls me in the wrong direction. As long as I have breath and I'm in this body, I will feel resonance with sin from time to time. And if I don't think that, that's, that someday I, I'm going to stop feeling that, I'm a fool. Because I'm setting myself up to fall. Feeling that pull in and of itself is not sin. Jesus felt it. Number three, in my war with the devil, I need to discover who I am in Christ. Discover who you are in Christ. The devil comes to Jesus and says, If or since you are the Son of God, turn these stones to bread. You can almost hear the insinuation. If or since you are the Son of God. The enemy is questioning his relationship, his identity, and who he is before the Father. In a similar way, the Christian who is unaware of who they are in Christ is roadkill for the devil. We need to know who we are in Christ. We need to know, as we sang so beautifully a while ago, that it's only because of the blood of Christ that I am forgiven. It's only because of the blood of Christ that my sins are washed away. It's not my righteousness. It's all about Him. It's all about what He has done, what He has accomplished. In Colossians chapter 1, verse 13, Paul says, He has delivered us from the power or the domain of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of His love, in whom we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins. Still living, as C.S. Lewis said, living in enemy territory, but citizen of another kingdom. And I have to understand that about myself. There was a guy a couple years ago at a church here in Arkansas where I was serving as an interim pastor. I wish I could tell you the whole story, but he was a professor at a university, and he started attending, and he just sort of sat in the back and was listening. And he came up to me after church one day and he said, I, I really need to talk to you. He said, I, I come from a, another Catholic, a Catholic background, another Christian tradition. I said, well, I was raised Catholic. That's my background. 
He said, I knew it. I knew I could talk to you. And so he begins to tell me his story. Now, this is not an a, uh, attack on Catholicism at all. But this was this guy's experience. He grew up in parochial schools. I did. He was an altar boy. I was an altar boy. And I listened to his story. And he was ADHD in school. And, and he, he was failing everything. In fact, when the time came for confirmation, which in the Catholic Church is kind of a rite of passage where you kind of own the faith for yourself and supposedly the Holy Spirit comes inside you at that moment. At that, at that point, a child takes another name and adds it to their name. You have a baptismal name, your middle name, and then you have another name, your confirmation name. And he asked one of the sisters, he said, what name should I take? And, and she said, you should take St. Jude the patron saint of lost causes. And she gave him a St. Jude medal. And, and, uh, and he grew up always with this cloud of inadequacy over him, and that he was a failure. He became a professor. He was a successful guy. He was smart. But he always had this cloud over him. And, and I prayed with this guy. He comes to know Christ. His life changes as he discovers that in Christ I can do all things. He discovers in Christ I'm completely forgiven. In Christ, my inadequacies, I can offer them to Him because He is fully adequate. When I got ready to baptize that guy, his name was David, he comes to me before the service and we're kind of standing in the back. He says, he said, Don, I want to give you something. He said, hold out your hand. I didn't know what he was going to do. I held it out. He puts that St. Jude medal in my hand. I've still got it at home. He says, I want you to have this. He closed up my hand. He said, I don't need it anymore. I'm not a lost cause. We have to understand who we are in Christ if we're going to defeat the enemy. And then, number four, we need to expose and resist the enemy. When the tempter came to him in verse 3, he said, If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. But he answered and said, That word, but, is an adversative in the Greek language. It means a a, a total shift of direction. Jesus becomes adversarial the moment he realizes what Satan is doing. And so should we. We should become adversarial. The moment I realize I'm being tempted, I should become adversarial with the enemy. But he answered and said, and he quotes Scripture to him in the face of it. But the enemy must be identified as an adversary. The course of action must be identified as sin. I've got I've to blow the fog out of my mind and recognize what's happening. Jesus becomes adversarial, and so should you. When, uh, when I travel, I spend a lot of time in hotel rooms by myself. And those of you who travel, you understand that they put stuff a lot of times on the television that I couldn't watch at home, I wouldn't watch at home, and yet because I'm alone in a hotel room, I can be tempted to watch that. Well, six years ago when I started this, uh, that was kind of a new experience for me, and I realized what was happening, and I did what I've done for years. Now, not everybody can do this. Uh, Sometimes it needs to be somebody else, but for years, whenever I have been in that kind of situation, I pick up the phone, I call my wife, I said, Gail, I am being tempted in a way that I'm not comfortable with, and I just want you to hear it, and I want to pray with you, and then I'm going to hang up. Okay? What is that? That's exposing and resisting the enemy. It really is. You can look at those other scriptures on your handout. You see that in the New Testament. It's a pattern. 
were to expose and resist the enemy. Now I come into a hotel room and, and uh, when I'm by myself, I pray over the room. That may sound funny, but I don't know what's going on in that room. And there, I really do believe in the unseen world that affects the world that I do see. And the enemy takes advantage of people in hotel rooms and all kinds of places. And so I go in there and I'll just bow my head and I'll just say, Lord, the time that I'm here, it may be short, but Father, I want this to be sacred ground. I want this to be a place where you can speak to me anytime you want to. And Father, I don't want to do anything here that would come between you and me. Lord, would you fill this place? Now, is that silly? Um, when you expose and resist, a lot of the power of that temptation gets sucked out the door. It really does. Number five, answer with absorbed and applied Scripture. Answer with absorbed and applied Scripture. Hear what Jesus does every time He's tempted. Verse four, but He answered and said, It is written. Verse seven, Jesus said to him, It is written again. Matthew 4, verse 10, Then Jesus said to him, Away with you, Satan, for it is written. Now, notice Jesus over and over again is saying, It is written. It is written. It is written. In the face of temptation, He's quoting Scripture that's been absorbed into His heart and colors His mind and colors His decisions and colors His life. And if the Lord Jesus, the Son of God of the universe could not defeat the devil without bringing Scripture in the face of temptation. What makes me think I can? It is absolutely vital that I take the Word of God, which represents the direction and the heart of God, and I make it part of my thinking. And it's more than Scripture memory. It's absorbing it so it becomes part of me. So if you scratch me, the first reaction I have is what does the Bible say? What does God say about this? And so that's how Jesus responds to him. Jesus never acted independently of the Father. He, everything He did, He did because the Father told Him, because the Father empowered Him, the Father directed Him through the Holy Spirit. It's not His power. That's how He chose to live. He was the Son of God, but He chose to live dependently on His Father. In everything. So he quotes Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3. Talking about the wilderness where God provided the daily manna of bread to feed the people in the wilderness. To teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. That concept of being dependent bleeds through. Number six, exercise faith through prayer. The Bible says the devil took Jesus up on a holy city set him on the pinnacle of the temple, said to him, If you're the Son of God, throw yourself down. Verse 7, Jesus said to him, It is written again, You should not tempt the Lord your God. He's saying, he quotes Scripture. He said, God's going to send His angels. He's quoting Psalm 91. They're going to bear you up lest you dash your foot against a stone. You're trusting in God. Let's see what God can do. Let's, let's jump and sort of force God's hand. I can make God do what I want Him to do. I can control God. I'm depending on Him, but I can control Him. And that's a lie that continues to pervade people and causes disappointment over and over again. The idea that I can tell God what to do. And so Satan's suggesting that God is available on demand. 
And in contrast to that, I need to pray and find out what God wants to do. Jesus says, do not test the Lord your God as you did at Massa. He's, he's alluding to a passage in Deuteronomy 6. In the Old Testament, when the people were traveling through the wilderness, they didn't have water to drink, and they griped before God, and Moses was directed by God to take the same staff that he used to divide the Red Sea and hit a rock and provide water. And in Exodus 17, verse 7, it says, And he called the place Massa and Meribah because the Israelites quarreled and because they tested the Lord, saying, Is the Lord among us or not? And how many times have you and I gotten in trouble and felt pressure and were hungry and were tired and desperate and were saying the very same thing they did? Is the Lord among us or not? God, if you really loved me, you would do this. God, if you really cared about me, you would do this. God, if you really loved me, is the Lord among us or not? You know, if there's ever any question about God's love, all you've got to do is look at the cross. For God so loved the world, it says, forever settles the question of whether or not God loves us and whether or not God is here. And so what is he doing? He's saying, am I going to allow my needs to rule or am I going to trust God? Am I going to allow my circumstances to dictate whether or not I trust Him or am I going to trust Him? And so prayer becomes vital, actively trust God. And then finally, number seven, yield yourself completely to the King. Yield yourself completely to the King. In this final recorded temptation, the devil shows Jesus all the kingdoms of the world, offers Him a shortcut to a kingdom. You don't have to die on the cross. You can fall down and worship Me. Lie prostrate at My feet. And I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world. Again, if the devil didn't control the governmental systems of the world and have great influence over humanity, that could not have been a legitimate temptation. And Jesus responds to him, and says, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and Him only you shall serve. I don't need the kingdoms of the earth. Satan comes to us and says, you know, you serve God, you've given up so much, you've done so much for Him. What about you? What about what you want? What about your needs? When, are you gonna, when is your ship going to come in? When are you going to be blessed? God seems to be blessing everybody else. When are you going to be blessed? It's time for you to consider yourself. It's time to do something for yourself. It's time to take care of you. And in the face of that, Jesus says, I'll sit here and starve before I worship you. It's not about me. It's all about Him. It's all about the Lord. I'm going to serve Him. He is my King. You do what you want to to me. But I'm going to serve Him. And so that's what it boils down to. And this is the fundamental stance that Jesus takes in the face of temptation that you and I can embrace this morning. And that's this. Who's going to be my King? Who's going to be my King? Who's going to be the King of my life? Am I going to rule my life? Am I going to let others rule my life? Or is God going to rule my life? Who's going to have directional control? If I'm not careful, I'll let my desires rule, and then I'm just available for any kind of temptation the devil wants to bring. So I can't, I can't do a self-directed life, or I'll get creamed spiritually. I've got to take my desires my heart, my passions, and give them to somebody else. And you're going to give them to somebody. You really are. Who's going to be king? Do you ever realize that Jesus did not come into this world, walk the earth, demonstrate the rule of God, die on a cross, so that you could just come to church on Sunday? 
He died and rose from the dead so that He could be Lord both of the living and the dead. Jesus died to be your Master and your King. To purchase you and then wash you and use you and give you your original purpose back. Who will be King of your life? Let me ask you to bow your heads and close your eyes. We're going to have a time of response and and during this time, it would be an opportunity for you to consider what God has said to you, to your heart. This is such a, such a private thing because you alone know your heart. Such a private thing that, that it's really hard to ask you to respond in a physical way. If it helps you, I invite you to come and just kneel at the steps. Perhaps there's been a real struggle in your heart, a life, or something you're praying about, something you're really wanting to give to God to let Him rule in. Sometimes it's helpful to me just to slip out of the chair and come and kneel at the front and say, Lord, I heard what you said. Here's my response. You don't have to talk to me. Maybe you need someone to pray with you. You're, you're struggling in your relationship with God and you really want to yield to Him and give Him directional control. You just need someone to pray with you and help you. I don't know if I can answer all your questions, but I'd love to try. I'll be down here at the front during this response time. I'll be glad to help. Our Father and God, we thank you, Lord, for your patience with us, your goodness towards us. Open our eyes now that we might be conscious and alert to the work of a mortal enemy against our souls who has targeted our life, targeted our family, targeted our church for destruction, for murder and mayhem, for shame. Fathers, we recognize what the enemy wants to do and what he's trying to do. Give us wisdom to turn to you and abandon everything into your hands. To run to you like a child runs to their father. And cry out to you, Lord, lead us not to temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. We want you to rule in our life. We want your direction, your guidance. We need your power and your protection. We will not survive any other way. So, Lord, with a sense of desperation in these moments, we come to you. We invite you, Holy Spirit, to come. Speak to our hearts. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.